This is part two of the case of Maria Rudolph, a seven-year-old girl who vanished from Sycamore, Illinois, on a wintry evening in 1957. Her badly decomposed remains would be found about 100 miles from her home in April of 1958. Our story picks up about 40 years after her murder, with the family of early suspect Johnny Tessier, now Jack McCullough, telling law enforcement what they know and what they've heard about their older brother's involvement in the case. But before we continue delving into Jack McCullough's potential involvement in the murder, we need to talk again about William Henry Redmond, the suspect who, in 1997, was considered the prime candidate for having committed this crime. In fact, Lieutenant Solar, the investigator in charge of the case, labeled the Rudolph murder closed but not solved, only because Redmond died in 1992 years before he could be thoroughly investigated for her murder. But a phone call from one of Jack McCullough's sisters had investigators looking into the case once again, which leads us back to a 2008 interview with Jack's sister, Kathy. Kathy told police that in the days following the disappearance of Maria, officers came by the house and asked if a Johnny lived there. Kathy said that her parents told them yes and that her parents said that he had been home the entire evening of the 3rd. So what Kathy is saying is that her parents gave Jack an alibi, which is the opposite of what they did when the FBI did show up. Her parents did not provide him an alibi. Her parents told them that Jack was in Rockford, Illinois, getting his Air Force physical on the night of the 3rd. Regardless, Kathy said that when the police left, her parents turned to the children and said, Jack had been there all night, remember? And they said it in a way that would convince the kids that it was true. Then Kathy said that Ralph took Jack to Rockford, enlisted him in the Air Force, and shipped him out as quickly as he could. Which again, we know is not true, because Jack was already in the process of enlisting in the Air Force in the days before Maria's kidnapping. And all of this is verifiable assuming that investigators waded through the literally hundreds of pages provided by the FBI to the Illinois State Police from their investigation. Kathy then told them about Jack's military career before he was honorably discharged due to budget cuts. She told them about Jack's marriage to Sonia and how she heard that Jack had cheated on Sonia with sex workers. And Sonia told Jack she was divorcing him after 12 years of marriage by flying with him to Illinois with the family for Christmas then handing him divorce papers and stranding him at the airport. Kathy said that Sonia had to do it that way. She had to leave him that way because Jack had a propensity of becoming very violent when he was angry. Then Kathy told them about Jack's second marriage to Lori, that the two met when Jack became her bodyguard after he was fired from the police department for sexually abusing two runaway girls who were living with him. Jack and Lori were married about two years, then he married Denise, then he married Suzanne. Kathy couldn't provide them the maiden names of any of Jack's wives. Kathy talked about Jack's missing daughter and his son, who was homeless at the time. But Kathy hadn't spoken to Jack since 1994, about 14 years before this interview took place. On November 13, 2009, Illinois State Police agents Hanley and Damaski traveled to Louisville, Kentucky to interview Bob and Jean Tessier. They separated the siblings and interviewed Bob first. Bob echoed what his sisters said in that he felt Jack was not a good person. He said he'd heard stories from his sisters about the ways that Jack had mistreated them. 
After Bob's interview, Bob's wife mentioned to investigators that Bob was missing his left arm. He'd lost his arm in a terrible traumatic accident. And she said that between the accident and the medication he took, that Bob's memory was not reliable. Jean's interview began with her explaining the dynamics of the Tessier family. She then told them that Jack had sexually assaulted her numerous times. One day, he took her behind some tall bushes in the neighborhood and assaulted her. After that, it was a habit of his. She went on to say that he also sexually assaulted other neighborhood girls behind those bushes, and she knew this to be true because she acted as his lookout when he did these things. Then Jean said that her father had also sexually assaulted her. From there, the interview moved to the day of Maria's disappearance. Jean said that Jack went to enlist in the Air Force that morning, and that when Maria went missing, the neighborhood became chaotic. The owner of the hardware store where Ralph worked, he asked him to open the store so that he could distribute flashlights and batteries to anyone who was out looking. Jean said she was home the entire night and did not remember Jack ever coming home. And she would have known when he came home because she slept downstairs on the couch and let her parents back in around three or four in the morning. Jeannie said that both the FBI and the Sycamore police came to their home. Eileen had told them that Jack was home all night, and Jean was astounded that her mother would tell a lie like that. And as we mentioned earlier, it's just not true. Ralph and Eileen Tessier did not tell the FBI or the Sycamore police that Jack was home the night of Maria's disappearance. Jean said that Jack would have been familiar with the area where Maria's body was recovered because he and his friends drove around all the time causing trouble. She also said that neither Kathy nor Maria, the two little girls that were playing, they would not have known Jack because he was never around. Jean said she played with both girls, but never at the Tessier house because it was too small. Does that statement sound familiar to you, listeners? Because Kathy said the exact same thing three months earlier in her statement to the Illinois State Police. Jeannie told them that she was shocked when she heard the description of the kidnapper because it sounded so much like Jack. And she mentioned Jack's multicolored sweater, a sweater she said she never saw again after Maria's disappearance. Jean told the police a disturbing story, something that happened when she was 14. She said Jack was back from the military, and he arrived at the house in a nice convertible. He was supposed to take her for a ride around the block, but instead, he drove her to the house he was staying at. He then took her up to his bedroom where he began assaulting her. They were interrupted by two of Jack's friends. Jack decided he wasn't going to assault her, but he offered his sister to his friends, and the men raped her. With that revelation, Jean said the interview was over. Now, the Illinois State Police got what they needed from Gene. A direct corroboration of Jack's history of sexual assault would cast him as a deviant, the kind of man who would kidnap a seven-year-old girl and then kill her. They felt like they were on the right track with Jack McCullough. At the very least, they could charge him with rape. After exhaustive and nationwide interviews with the siblings of Johnny Tessier, a.k.a. Jack McCullough, the Illinois State Police interviewed some old friends of Jack to get an idea of what kind of teenager he was. One of their interviews was with Jack's old girlfriend, the one he spent time with on the night of Maria's disappearance, Janice Edwards Swaffer. Special agents Hanley and Damaski conducted the interview over the phone because Janice now lived in Bradenton, Florida. They asked her to recall the events of December 3, 1957. 
and she said the kidnapping was the talk of the town and that she did not participate in the search for the little girl. When Special Agent Hanley gave Janice the description of Johnny, she said, yep, that sounded like Jack. They asked Janice to describe Jack, and she described him as 5'11 or 6 feet tall, thin, sandy blonde wavy hair, and usually dressed pretty nicely. She told them that she had dated him for about a year and that he was a clingy boyfriend. She said Jack knew the Rockford area very well because on their dates, they would often spend time just driving around. And when they broke up, Jack didn't take it very well. When he decided to enlist in the Air Force, she was surprised because he'd never talked about joining the military when they were dating. And that's where the interview ends, but this won't be her last interview with investigators. On June 3rd, 2010, the FBI sent the Illinois State Police a DVD that contained a complete copy of the original files. This would have given them everything the FBI had on Jack McCullough, or John Tessier, including his alibi for the night of Maria's disappearance. They could see that the FBI verified the phone call made at 6.57 p.m. and that Jack had met with two Air Force personnel between 7.15 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. This is also where they learn that 7 p.m. is the accepted disappearance time for Maria. But they learned that the FBI did not verify Jack's train ride that brought him from Chicago to Rockford. This left him wide open with no alibi from noon until 7.15 p.m. So the state police, they thought they had something to work with. They thought they could solve the oldest cold case in U.S. history. But remember, this is a case that's already been labeled solved but not closed by an earlier investigative team. They developed a new theory, one that created an entirely new story about what happened the night Maria disappeared from Sycamore. Maybe Jack came home from Chicago much earlier than he reported. And maybe he kidnapped Maria, took her to Rockford, made a phone call to his parents, and thus established his alibi. And since he had a car, he would have made the drive home himself. Ralph would not have needed to pick him up. And if Ralph didn't need to pick him up, he would have been able to take Kathy to her 4-H meeting and open up the hardware store to pass out flashlights like the sisters said that he did. On the way home, Jack could have dumped Maria's body. Then he would drive back to Sycamore and come in late at night, too late to have a date with Janice. But the only way this could have all happened was if Maria were kidnapped much earlier than the accepted timeline. She would have had to have been kidnapped around 6 p.m., an hour earlier than the 7 p.m. kidnapping time that's been agreed upon for more than 50 years. Agents called Janice back to see if she had a photo of Jack, a photo they could use in a lineup. She said she would check her old picture boxes and get back to them. And when she called them, she said she not only had a photo of Jack, but with it was a train ticket that Jack gave to her for safekeeping. And listeners... This was the train ticket he was given when he went to sign up for the Air Force on November 29, 1957, just two days after he turned 18. He must have forgotten to get the ticket back from her. She mailed both the photo and the ticket to the agents. The ticket was a one-way ticket from Rockford, Illinois, to Chicago, and it was stamped government order with the issue date of November 29, 1957, and it was valid for 30 days. Now, this ticket, it's not like a traditional ticket. It's more like a pass. It's not labeled with the date and time of when it was redeemed, which is a shame, because if it was, it would be nearly an ironclad alibi. 
With the photo in hand, agents created a six-pack using other photos from the 1950s that were of similar quality to the one that Janice sent them. You see, they were creating a photo lineup for Kathy Sigmund to look at, but first, they wanted to interview her. Kathy, who's now Kathy Chapman, is living in St. Charles, Illinois, and she went over what happened on December 3, 1957. There were some slight differences in her account from what she said as a young child, but that's not a surprise. It's been 50 years. The agents opted not to show her the photo lineup at this initial meeting. And on September 9th, they came back to Kathy's house and presented her with the lineup. There was a cropped photo of Jack that was given to the ISP from Janice, as well as five yearbook photos from the same time. After four minutes of looking at the photos, Kathy settles on the photo of Jack and says, quote, That's him. From the best of my memory and recollection that night, that's him. Kathy signed her name to the photo she chose. DeKalb County Assistant State's Attorney William Engerman took what the ISP gave him to the grand jury, and the grand jury gathered to look at the evidence and listen to witnesses to determine if there was enough probable cause to take the case to the next step. Special Agent Hanley was questioned, and his answers were more aligned with the information he received from the Tessier sisters than the information he received from the FBI files. And this, in front of the grand jury, it's where they establish a new timeline. The Tessiers are also questioned, and they rehash much of the same stuff they already told the ISP. On June 29, 2011, Seattle Police Detective Cloyd Steiger prepared an affidavit for search warrant for Jack's residence. He also requested a warrant for Jack's arrest. Detective Steiger had been working with the ISP for some time, and now he was eager to help them get an arrest and, hopefully, a confession. The affidavit that Steiger wrote up declared that Kathy and Maria were approached by Johnny at 6 p.m. and that Maria was gone by 7 p.m. This is in direct conflict with the FBI files that have Maria abducted just before 7 p.m. In fact, there are multiple witnesses who saw the girls out on the corner after 6.15. But the new timeline, the one that the ISP drew up, that's what gave them the leeway they needed to prove that Jack was the kidnapper and the killer of little Maria. So Jack McCullough is arrested for the kidnapping and murder of Maria Rudolph. The court documents were supposed to be sealed, but oops, they were left unsealed. This led to reporters catching wind of the story and publishing articles about a 72-year-old man being arrested for a murder that happened more than 50 years earlier. Once in custody, Jack is interrogated by Special Agent Hanley and a man named David Zalowski. Zalowski is an expert in forensic interrogation. At first, the interview went smoothly, but when Jack felt like it was an interrogation, he started getting angry. He honestly couldn't remember the details of his 50-year-old alibi. And Zalaski, he kept challenging Jack's alibi, and Jack honestly could not remember what he'd said five decades earlier. Then, Zalaski started telling little lies, hoping to catch Jack in a slip. But most of the interview is Jack saying, I don't know, I don't remember, while he becomes more and more frustrated. Then, they took him in for a polygraph, and the polygraph was administered by Detective Irene Lau. Again, they're trying to go over Jack's alibi, and again, he can't remember. The two got into a short argument when Detective Lau asked questions about Jack's sexual history and criminal past. Jack didn't want to answer these questions, and Detective Lau said if he didn't want to answer the questions, then they were done. 
Jack finally said he would answer only questions that pertained to Maria, and he didn't want to answer any fishing questions. When Detective Lau persisted with questions about having sexual contact with his sisters, Jack ended the test. After the polygraph, Jack was led back into the interrogation room. Another detective, Mike Szynski, he got Jack a cup of coffee from a local fast food place. He was trying to build rapport with Jack because Zalaski had not done a good job of it. Detective Szynski was trying to make one last run at getting a confession out of Jack, but Jack was not taking the bait. He maintained his innocence throughout the interview. He said his mother would never say that he killed Maria because she knew where he was that day. And listeners, three times Jack asked for a lawyer, and the requests were ignored. Finally, Detective Szynski arrested him for murder, and he was taken to the King County Jail for processing before being extradited to Sycamore, Illinois. Jack's bond was set at $3 million. On July 6th, DeKalb County State's Attorney Victor Escarcita submitted an affidavit seeking an order of extradition for Jack to be returned to Sycamore, and it was granted. Spending a few days in custody gave him time to think about his alibi. Jack presented them with an alibi for where he was on December 3, 1957. This was his alibi based on the Chicago Tribune and Boston Globe articles. His alibi was the same as it was back in 1957. He was in Chicago for medical examinations. His stepfather gave him a ride to Chicago that morning. And after his medical exams, he hitchhiked from Chicago to Rockford. And then once he was in Rockford, he placed a call at 6.57 p.m. to his stepfather, asking him to pick him up and give him a ride home. The abduction took place at 6 p.m., so there's no way that he could be responsible for what happened to Maria. And his military records would show that he was taking his physical that day, and that would exonerate him. On July 7th, Jack is interviewed by the Associated Press and the Chicago Tribune. In both interviews, he proclaims his innocence and explains his alibi. Jack waived his rights and agreed to be extradited on July 20th. During the trip, he told the detectives that he was going to be exonerated, and he basked in the attention that he was receiving. He even bragged about the calls he was getting from the media. When they arrived in Sycamore, Jack was turned over to the DeKalb County Jail. There, he would meet his public defender, Regina Harris, and her investigator, Crystal Harrell. He swore to the ladies that he was innocent, and after their meeting, they felt that they just might believe him. And there were red flags for Regina and Crystal from the very beginning. Something was not quite right with prosecution's case. Discovery documents from the original 1957-1958 investigation were basically illegible, and they had to request new copies. Then, like out of nowhere, state's attorney Clay Campbell announced that he was going to try Jack for the rape of his half-sister, Jean Tessier, in 1962. Regina saw this as the prosecution not having any real evidence of the murder and kidnapping of Maria Rudolph, so they decided to tack on a different charge as well. April 10, 2012, was Jack's first day in court. He was facing the charge of rape against his half-sister. Jean testified to the rape, and Michelle Weinman also testified. She was the runaway girl that Jack allegedly sexually assaulted while she was staying with him. Michelle's testimony was there in an effort to establish Jack's propensity for young girls and sexual deviancy. The defense cross-examined both women calling into question certain details about the crime, such as why didn't they come forward immediately. 
The defense presented their case next. Regina called Floyd Tucker as her first witness. Floyd lived in the house where Jack allegedly sexually assaulted his half-sister. Floyd testified that Jack had never lived in that house. He said he didn't know anyone who drove a red and white convertible like the one Jean said Jack was driving the day he picked her up and took her to the house and assaulted her. The defense next called Terry Glenn to the stand to nail down who it was that drove a red convertible. To Terry's knowledge, no one did. Both sides made their closing arguments. The judge thanked them and said she would have her verdict the next morning at 10.30 a.m. In the morning, the judge went through the charges, one count of rape and four counts of indecent liberties with a child. She then went through both the prosecution's and the defense's cases. She pointed out many flaws of the prosecution's case and delivered a verdict of not guilty. Jack later admitted to being nervous because he felt his sister was a good speaker and that she could have swayed the judge into believing her story. And there was a lot of upset in the courtroom regarding the verdict. State's attorney Clay Campbell was offended by the judge's assertion that he didn't meet the burden of proof needed for a guilty verdict and did not have an issue with telling anyone who would listen how he felt about it. He said the judge should recuse herself from the murder trial, which she did in order to, quote, avoid potential perception of an unfair decision because of her decision finding McCullough not guilty in a different case. Also, Regina Harris, his public defender, she stepped down because of a scandal involving her and the drug court. Apparently, Clay Campbell began an investigation into drug court when law enforcement brought to his attention a female graduate of the drug court program who was allegedly involved in the financial exploitations of a senior citizen that she was related to. And this graduate was caught driving Regina Harris's car when the car had 11 bags of heroin in it. Yeah, it's very complicated. And Regina believed in the drug court program. She did not want this scandal to end the program, so she stepped down from her position as public defender. This means she would not be able to represent Jack at his murder trial. And while all of this drama with the drug court and his public defender is going down, another autopsy is being performed on Maria's body. They exhumed her, and a Dr. Krista Latham submitted her report on April 10th 2012. She found some cuts that were, quote, unusual due to their locations, orientation, and depth in Maria's throat. The wounds were larger than what would have been made by a scalpel, and they were missed during the first autopsy. Dr. Latham determined a likely cause of death for Maria Rudolph. She'd been stabbed at least three times. In January 2012, a few months earlier, a new prosecution witness came forward, Kirk Swaggerty, an inmate at the Menard Correctional Center. He wrote a letter to Clay Campbell. In the letter, he said he'd been in the DeKalb County Jail in August of 2011 with Jack McCullough. He said that Jack confessed to killing Maria. Jack had told him that she fell while he was giving her a piggyback ride. He didn't mean to kill her. Campbell gave the letter to Special Agent Handley, who subsequently went to interview Kirk Swaggerty. And Swaggerty seemed convincing. But this was before they'd received any updated autopsy results. Kirk wrote another letter on February 27th, and in this letter he said he'd forgotten to mention an important detail. Jack had accidentally suffocated Maria to keep her from screaming. 
Meanwhile, DeKalb County needs a public defender, so Chief Judge Robin Stuckert reached out to nearby Kane County and got Kane County Public Defender Thomas McCulloch, who was in private practice. McCulloch agreed to be the interim public defender. He had a month to familiarize himself with the Maria Rudolph case. He would also have the help of Assistant Public Defender Robert Carlson and Investigator Crystal Harrell. Then there was a serious blow to the defense. The FBI reports were ruled inadmissible under both defense arguments. As either public records like police reports, they also could not be admitted as an ancient document. This meant that the defense could not use the old FBI files as part of their defense strategy. When asked if he felt the defense was handicapped, Attorney McCulloch said, Oh, I think so. For Jack's alibi to be heard, he would have to take the stand. And this was a problem because he gave conflicting alibis to the Illinois State Police and to the media. This would open him up to a lot of problems during cross-examination. Also, Jack was a loose cannon. He could end up doing himself more harm than good on the stand. So all the defense could do was hope that the state's case came across as ridiculous and that the judge would see it as such. The trial began on September 10th, 2012. In the meanwhile, two additional jailhouse witnesses came forward, Christopher Diaz and a John Doe. Christopher Diaz claimed that Jack had asked him and the John Doe if they could do something to keep Kirk Swaggerty, the first jailhouse informant, from testifying. The John Doe was also willing to testify, but only if he could do so anonymously because he was afraid of retaliation from Jack or other jail inmates who would label him a snitch. Judge Halleck allowed both witnesses to testify and allowed the John Doe to keep his anonymity. And with that, the trial began. Detective Irene Lau was flown in from Seattle to testify for the prosecution. It's clear that her testimony was to paint a picture of Jack as a man who was in love with little Maria. She said that his demeanor softened when he spoke about her and that he described her as lovely. Both of these things are untrue. Because there's video of the attempted polygraph, and in August of 2016, Detective Lau's testimony would become the subject of a perjury investigation. In June of 2018, a special prosecutor concluded there was not sufficient evidence to charge her, but her questionable testimony did its damage. Maria's friend, Kathy Sigman, now Kathy Chapman, she testified. Her role was to retell the story of when her best friend, Maria, disappeared, as well as to describe what Johnny looked like. Kathy Sigmund was crucial to the prosecution's case as she was the same one who identified Jack McCullough as Johnny who approached her and Maria that night, 50 years earlier. She did, however, muddy the waters in terms of the timeline, and this gave the defense an opportunity to capitalize on the fact that the timeline the prosecution was offering was essentially pulled out of thin air. The defense also took this opportunity to try and discredit the photo ID itself. You see, the photo of Jack, it was different from the others because Jack's picture was candid, while the other photos were yearbook pictures. Also, Kathy didn't point right at Jack's photo and say that's him. Rather, she eliminated photos down to Jack's and said, quote, to the best of my recollection, that's him. One of our jailhouse informants, Christopher Diaz, he testified on the third day. He shared what he overheard Jack tell John Doe about the crime, 
and Christopher overheard Jack say that he took Maria into his home while his mother knew and strangled her with a wire. This, according to the prosecution, would be the terrible secret that Eileen lived with for 37 years, and this is why it would be so important for her daughters to make sure that Jack paid for his crime. Jack then asked Christopher and John Doe if they would take care of Kirk Swaggerty for him. The defense took this opportunity to bring up Christopher's crimes, which instantly ruined his credibility. Dr. Latham, the forensic anthropologist, testified after Christopher Diaz. She testified to the fact that Maria's cause of death was stab wounds to her neck and chest with a large-bladed knife. She described the knife as being like a hunting or fishing knife. Her testimony discredited Christopher Diaz's statement that Jack said he strangled Maria. It would also discredit the testimony of the other jailhouse informants who testified late in the trial. And even though she was a witness for the prosecution, Dr. Latham did a lot to help the defense. John Doe took the stand, and much of his testimony was like Christopher Diaz in terms of what Jack said he did to Maria. He also confirmed that Jack asked for help with Kirk Swaggerty. Like Christopher, John Doe's credibility was called into question when his crimes were brought up during cross-examination. But he was very solid during cross-examination and held up under questioning. Kirk Swaggerty testified on the fourth day. He didn't have anything new to add to the story that Jack supposedly told him about the day Maria died. He did, however, offer up information that was not made public about the search that police made at Jack's home. Investigators opened a safe at his home and asked Jack's wife, Sue, a bunch of questions she found inappropriate. Questions like, does your husband beat you? Thus, Sue told Jack about the safe incident over the phone, and Jack would have to tell Kirk, giving his story credibility. The defense pointed out that Kirk has written numerous letters to the state as a jailhouse informant against multiple other inmates. Kirk is in jail for murder and will most likely die in jail, but he has petitioned the state for relief, so the thought process is that if he helps the state, maybe the state will help him. The state called several other witnesses, but we're really just touching on the highlights. If you are interested in not just reading about the trial in its entirety, but getting all the fine details and minutiae we cannot cover in a podcast, I suggest that you pick up the book A Convenient Man by Dennis Tomlinson and Jeffrey Dotty. There you will find a highly detailed book about Maria Rudolph from the day of her disappearance until now. And the state rested their case. After the defense's motion for a direct verdict of not guilty was denied, they called to the stand Mary Tessier Hunt. Mary was a cooperating witness, but reluctantly. She believed in her brother's guilt, just like her other sisters. The defense harped on the state of Eileen during the final weeks, particularly her deteriorating mental state. Eileen was Jack's mother, so they went over what Eileen's words were to Mary. Mary said, quote, he did it. That's what Eileen said. But Eileen did not expand on who he was or what it was. Mary just made the jump that he meant Jack and it was what became of young Maria Rudolph. The defense called Dr. John Prebaker to the stand. The doctor had been called in to place an IV of continuous morphine infusion into Eileen's neck, as nurses could not find a vein in her arm. He testified that one of the side effects of morphine is confusion. He also testified that one of the side effects of Haldol, another medication that Eileen was taking, is also confusion, 
In fact, the doctor's notes state that Eileen's mental state at the time he put the IV in her neck was that she was pleasantly confused. The most shocking part of his testimony was that Eileen at the time had been diagnosed with an unspecified psychosis. He'd put the IV in her neck on January 10, 1994, and she died on January 23rd. Mary and Janet stated their mother made this deathbed confession at the hospital just a couple of weeks before her death. This would have been at the time when she was taking a continuous morphine drip along with Haldol and suffering from psychosis. Haldol is an antipsychotic drug used during hospice to control agitation and delirium. After this, the defense rests. The state declined to present a rebuttal. Three closing arguments were presented, one by the defense and two by the state. After listening to the closing arguments, Judge Halleck gave his verdict. He found Jack McCullough guilty. Public defender Tom McCulloch filed a post-trial motion on October 12, 2012, asking the court to either throw out the convictions or vacate them and order a new trial. The judge denied the motion and sentenced Jack to spend the rest of his natural life in prison. The defense announced that they would appeal. On December 10, 2012, Assistant Deputy Defender Paul Glazer was appointed to represent Jack. Paul Glazer came from the Office of the State Appellate Defender, and by February 1, 2013, the Appellate Defender's Office received 2,100 pages from Jack's trial defense team in order to help them prepare for the appeal. On March 5th, because of the caseload and the size of this file, they were given until January 2nd, 2014 to file the brief. On December 13th, 2013, the defender asked for another delay, this time 88 days to file, because they would miss that date by 17 days. Eventually, on April 17th, 2014, the appellate defender's office filed an 80-page brief. They would cover four areas. The evidence at the trial did not prove Jack guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Jack was denied his constitutional right to a fair trial. Judge Halleck abused his discretion by allowing the prosecution to introduce irrelevant and prejudicial evidence, and the evidence failed to prove any exception to the statute of limitations on kidnapping and abduction charges, and whether the convictions on both counts violated the one-act, one-crime rule. Scott Jacobson, staff attorney with the state attorney's appellate prosecutor's office, was assigned the case. On August 1, 2014, Jacobson filed a 64-page brief that answered the points in the defense brief, and they could now move forward with the case. On December 3, 2014, 57 years to the day that Maria was kidnapped and murdered, oral arguments were heard. Both sides had their opportunity to argue their case. On February 2, 2015, the appellate court's ruling was published. The ruling was in four parts, just like the appeal. The appellate court did rule in Jack's favor that the FBI files should have been admissible, provided they had a hearsay exemption. However, since they did not give him an alibi for a 6 p.m. abduction, they were essentially useless. The court also ruled that Judge Halleck erred in admitting Eileen Tessier's deathbed confession. However, since he did not cite the confession in his verdict, it was considered a harmless error. The court also vacated Jack's convictions of kidnapping and abduction of an infant due to statute of limitations. But the court stood firm on the murder conviction and did not rule that Jack could have a new trial. 
The next place Jack could go for some possible relief would be the Illinois Supreme Court. And things were not safe for Jack while he was in prison awaiting for a chance to get the truth out. He was at the Pontiac Correctional Center when his cellmate attacked him with a shank and stabbed him in the right eye. He had to be taken to Chicago to have surgery to save his eye. When he returned to prison, he was taken into protective custody where he would be held indefinitely. Clay Campbell would lose his position as state attorney to Richard Schmack. Schmack, as he began to learn more about the 7 p.m. abduction timeline, really started to doubt the 6 p.m. abduction theory. He also spoke with Janice Swafford and learned that she was willing to testify that she had a date with Jack the night Maria disappeared, which is why the prosecution never called her to the stand. There was more good news for Jack. Paul Glazer, he received a letter from both John Doe and Kirk Swaggerty saying that they perjured themselves on the stand. Specifically, they lied. They lied about not receiving anything in exchange for their testimony. Both men were looking to get something in exchange for testifying against Jack. Jack's appellate team is working hard for him because they believed in his innocence and they were looking for a way to get his freedom. On June 19th, a post-conviction petition signed by Jack was received by the clerk's office at the courthouse in Sycamore. Judge Stuckert assigned Judge Pilmer to review it. It was asking the court for relief. It stated that the defendant, Jack, could provide a witness that placed him in Sycamore at 9.30 p.m. This blew a hole in the prosecution's case. Jack was asking for a declaration of innocence, but he was willing to settle for a retrial. Judge Pilmer ruled the petition frivolous and without merit. Thirteen days after the ruling, Jack filed notice that he was going to appeal. Public defender Tom McCulloch, he wrote a letter to the state's attorney Robert Schmack to ask if he would argue on Jack's behalf, hoping to get the circuit court to overturn the judge's ruling. The court denied Jack's appeal on October 5th. His only hope now was the circuit court in Sycamore. The same day, Richard Schmack answered Tom's letter with a seven-page letter of his own, admitting that McCulloch's case had weight and merit. Here it was in writing. The state's attorney believed that Jack McCullough was wrongfully convicted and he was willing to make a fight for him. October 28th was the date of the motion to reconsider. Judge Pilmer made no ruling but instead ordered Tom McCulloch to show why he should have standing to file motion with the court. The next hearing was set for November 30th. November 30th came and there was a short hearing where Tom said he wasn't ready to argue yet. So they had a continuance until December 15th. And on December 15th, Judge Pilmer ruled against McCulloch. State's attorney Schmack, who was in the courtroom as an observer, he remarked that Jack had filed a successive petition a few days earlier. It would need a judge's ruling, and since Judge Pilmer was transferring at the end of the year, another judge should be brought in at that point. Pilmer agreed, and a new judge, Judge Brady, was brought in. Court adjourned for a short while so Brady could get a briefing on the case. Then Brady adjourned the court until January 14th. He said Jack would need to be back in court on the 14th for that hearing. When January 14th rolled around, Judge Brady ruled that Jack's petition would not move forward based on the allegation of perjury of the jailhouse informants. However, it would move forward based on Janice's claim that she and Jack were together the night of the kidnapping. State's attorney Schmack was given 45 days to answer. On March 24th, the state's attorney filed his 38-page answer and supporting exhibits report with the court. 
In it, he reviews all of his findings concerning the kidnapping and murder of Maria Rudolph and to what extent Jack McCullough was involved. To summarize, he didn't think Jack was involved. On the same day, he sent a letter to Maria's surviving siblings telling them the same thing, even though he knew it probably wouldn't change their mind. Maria's brother, Chuck, filed a pro se emergency motion asking the court to replace him with a special prosecutor. He felt the state's attorney was no longer representing him but Jack. Judge Brady declared that Chuck had legal standing to file the motion under the Victims' Rights Act. He advised Chuck Rudolph to get a lawyer and to refile the motion for consideration at the next hearing. The Chicago firm of Jenner and Block took on Jack's case. Soon, they had an amended post-conviction petition demonstrating actual innocence, which was filed with the court on April 11th. Both Jenner and Block, as well as the state's attorney, filed a motion to strike Chuck Rudolph's emergency motion to appoint a special prosecutor. Chuck hired a lawyer the day before the hearing, so he was not ready to proceed with the motion, and he was granted a continuance. Meanwhile, Judge Brady vacated Jack's murder conviction, but was not willing to declare him innocent. He was under the impression that if he did that, it would pave the way for another trial. He did release Jack from prison under his own recognizance, but ordered him to stay in Illinois. Jack would stay in the home of author Jeffrey Dean Doty, the only person in the state willing to put him up. There was one problem with Judge Brady's expectations. The state's attorney was not willing to retry Jack for murder. Chuck Rudolph and his attorney returned with a petition with hundreds of signatures, including the mayor's, asking for a special prosecutor to be put in place of state's attorney Schmack. Judge Brady said if they could actually find a conflict of interest, then he would replace the state's attorney. Until then, he would stay. He gave them another month to find a conflict of interest. The next hearing was set for June 23rd. And listeners, I'm just heartbroken for Chuck Rudolph at this point because you know he's waited decades to find out what happened to his sister, and he thinks they've got the guy. But then all this chaos breaks out, and it just must have been ridiculously stressful for the family. Meanwhile, Chuck did find his witnesses. Former state's attorney Julie Trevarthen, she's the one who tried the original case with Clay Campbell, she was willing to testify that she saw Schmack talking with defense attorneys during the trial and heard him say that if he was elected, he would get the case dismissed because Jack was innocent. She would also say that she saw a Facebook post that Schmack made claiming Jack was innocent and that the trial was politically motivated. Chuck was also willing to testify about Janice being unsure of when her date with Jack was. When the hearing came on August 5th, Julie Tavarthen could not make it, so in lieu of her testimony, Judge Brady would use submitted affidavits to make his ruling. He ruled that a special prosecutor would not be put in place of the state's attorney. He didn't want to make that decision, but he had to because there was no conflict of interest. Since no special prosecutor would be appointed, Jack would not be tried again. But he wasn't yet in the clear. In three months, elections for the state's attorney were to be held, and if Robert Schmack were able to be replaced, the new attorney could prosecute Jack. Meanwhile, the exoneration project of the University of Chicago School of Law took up Jack's case and filed a petition for Certificate of Innocence. One of the highlights of their case was a two-month study they obtained from Dr. Nancy Stablay of Augsburg University, an eyewitness expert. Her report was called, quote, Eyewitness Identification Expert Report, 
State of Illinois versus Jack D. McCullough. She wrote a lot about the parameters surrounding Kathy Sigmund Chapman's ID of Jack, and she raised serious concerns about the identification. Remember, they were using a candid photo of Jack plus an assortment of yearbook photos, not to mention that the ID took place almost 50 years after the incident. Dr. Stable said that she was willing to testify on Jack's behalf. Then, the hearing for the petition came, and the new state's attorney, Rick Amato, he was there representing the state. He had been in office for four months and was there to argue against the petition. There were three witnesses, Janice Edward Swafford, Dr. Nancy Stable, and Jack McCullough. Judge Brady read his ruling into records on April 12, 2017. He granted Jack's petition. While Jack McCullough was many negative things, according to the state, he was not responsible for the murder of Maria Rudolph. And listeners, if it wasn't Johnny Tessier, a.k.a. Jack McCullough, then who murdered seven-year-old Maria Rudolph on a snowy night in 1957? Did Lieutenant Solar get it right in the mid-90s? Was it William Henry Redmond, the man who died in 1992 before he could be fully investigated for his possible role in her murder? If you can believe it, there was a lot of detail in this case that could not be included in the podcast. If you want to learn more about the Maria Rudolph kidnapping and murder, please read A Convenient Man by Dennis Tomlinson and Jeffrey Dean Doty. That's where the majority of research for this episode was gleaned, and it was a great book. I also recommend Footsteps in the Snow by Charles Lachman. Lachman actually thinks that Jack is guilty, and as you know, it's always good to get both sides of the story. Over the next two episodes, we will look at two more unsolved murders, the high-profile death of five-year-old Nevaeh Buchanan in Monroe, Michigan, and one I'm particularly excited about, a 1978 cold case that you've never heard of. This case got absolutely no press, so it'll be a first for all of us. This episode was researched and written by Brittany Martinez. Audio production provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. <laughs>